welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We're still talking COVID. Jason Kindrachuk joins me because guess what? It's not over. And Michael Landsberg, former TV host at TSN, shares his story of depression. Teeth clicking? Maybe it's something called TMJ. And what should you and your partner talk about before you hit the sheets? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Maureen's Health Headline. You have heard his voice for the past couple of years. He is the assistant. He is an assistant professor and Canada Research Chair, the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, and associate professor, Department of Biochemistry at the College of Medicine, Allied Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. He focuses on the pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses that have the potential to impact global public health. It is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. You know, whatever you say, it's, you know, I've heard my voice for the last couple of years. It just, it makes it feel like I've aged that much more. It's kind of like, has it been that long? <laughs> it's been that long. We're heading oh, into year three. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it seems like we get a little bit of a break and then Omicron hits. We get a little bit of a break and then a variant of Omicron hits. We, we now are seeing the headlines that the U.S. is expected to reach a million, if they haven't already, a million deaths from COVID-19. And there are some predictions that we are looking at a fall and winter surge. I have to say, clinically and in the community, I'm actually seeing that rise in COVID cases, and I and have been so for the past two to three weeks, I would say. So I'm hoping the warm weather gives us a bit more of a break, but uh, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, historically, we, we've had, you know, really a, a couple of years now to, to gain some some foothold on, on what things look like as, as seasons transition. And yes, you know, spring and summer gives us a bit of a reprieve. We're outside more. And certainly with this virus, um, you know, there is some transmission that can occur in uh, during warmer weather. But it's nothing near what we see during the colder months because people are indoors. And, and obviously, we, we have impacts because of ventilation and more transmissible variants. So I, I think the tail of the tape is likely going to be what we've seen previously, which is yeah, summertime probably is going to be okay. Although, again, we saw last year, certainly with Delta uh, in, uh, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, that you gave Delta some room in the summertime. It still was able to move around. Um, so, I, you know, I think we're, you know, we're, we're hopeful. But uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we're watching uh, BA2, but we're also keeping our eye on BA4 and BA5 and BA2.12.1. Uh, that that's been emerging uh, through New York State. Uh, we're, we're not through this yet. Not uh, you know we're we're very much on uh, on the virus's timeline at this point. And we are certainly not through this, and people are living as though we are. In part because they're listening to politicians who are looking for votes, versus scientists like yourself <laughs> who actually study this. And I mean, I actually had to speak to somebody this week about getting a booster. And their response to me was, have you read Robert Kennedy's book about Anthony Fauci? I mean, it was, (laughs) I have not, I don't plan to, but then the other part of the conversation was, are you familiar with the adverse events reporting system, the VAERS? I said, yes, I am. And I said, are you familiar with the fact that the VAERS counts every incident 
post a vaccination, such as a car accident or a broken leg as part um, as an adverse event associated with the vaccine or, or another medication. And, and then the, the person said, yeah, and they counted as COVID too. And I said, no, no, you're thinking of another database. <laughs> you're thinking of something else. People are so poorly educated about COVID and, and highly charged on their political affiliations about it. I mean, it's just outrageous. Well, it's, it's a difficult time, right? Again, we, we have a lot of knowledge that certainly has, has come out over the last couple of years, certainly through social media and, uh, and, and mainstream media as well. Uh, as well through through science communication, so a lot of certainly a lot of people in in the public that have you know, kind of you know started to understand what you know what it is virologists do, or epidemiologists do, or clinicians do, um, and, and vaccinologists do, um, but that expertise is not necessarily there. So the nuances and the context is not always provided. That's difficult because a little bit of information is good, but it can also be deleterious as well. And I think. That's the position we're in. We've got enough information to tell us some things about the virus and what it's doing and what this disease is, um, but we don't necessarily have all the nuance. Certainly, when we talk about vaccination, we talk about the protective effects um, to go through and start to understand. Well, what are all those protective effects? Um, what does that look like across age groups? What uh, what do we look at for potential adverse events? What has been seen historically? All these things are are, are complex and. Uh, it's difficult to try and and assess that data in real time uh, at you know at twenty four seven, which is why we have experts in specific fields uh, and not experts just in everything. So it's it's difficult, and I, I get it from a public standpoint. Um, you know, we're now you know coming to three years of this, uh, and and you know people are saying, well, why isn't it over? Um, because the virus is doing what it does, and the unfortunate aspect again is we can't predict what it's going to do next. We can respond, we can prepare to some extent, um, but we certainly are not at a stage yet where where we can look at this virus and say, okay, the next variant is going to look like this, um, and these are all the triggers we need to watch for. Uh, it's, it's too difficult. And you mentioned a number of variants, but the variants behave in different ways. For example, yeah. you can be symptomatic for a couple of days and it's not going to show up on a PCR test. That was Omicron. Um, you know, we don't we don't really know um, the the surge that's expected in the fall is expected to start in places where vaccination and booster rates lag. And, and especially, as you mentioned, where people congregate indoors. Um, we do have a, a lot of, uh, you know, tools in the toolbox. We have mm -hmm. testing and antiviral medications. And, of course, we have masks and, and vaccinations. So we're better prepared than we were a couple of years ago. Should the, you know, should that be available to people? Should there be funding? And should there be access to that? I mean, that's one reason that a lot of healthcare workers died in the pandemic is in part because they didn't have access to PPE, yeah. namely masks. Um, well, it's, it, it, go ahead. I was just going to say, and it's complex, right, because it, it continues to change as well. Because when we think about this idea of being prepared, like we have, we have the assets, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those assets are moving out to, to where they need to go. And that's a big part of this idea of pulling the trigger and saying, when do you start implementing restrictions or when do you start implementing uh, recommendations for, for use of, you know, Paxlovid or for other drugs more regularly. All these things 
um, we're, we're trying to figure out as, as it comes along. And I, I hope we're getting better. Um, but there is certainly still the lag. And that lag period is, is where we're really vulnerable. And if a virus gets hold, then it's hard to, to kind of stop that, uh, that speeding train. Mm-hmm. And do you think if we had had better uptick on vaccinations and boosters, um, we might not be in this place where there are so many variants? Oh, so this one's tough, right? Because, you know, I think Canada has done really good, Manitoba especially. First, second doses, we, we hit it out of the park. Third doses, we've struggled on. That's been a big issue for us. We know that people still have uh-huh. uh, certainly gone in the healthcare system. It's been across the globe. It's been this idea of getting people protected and trying to reduce that infectious burden in people. You're not going to 100% stop people from getting infected, but you may be able to subsequently uh, reduce their ability to transmit if they do have a breakthrough infection. And, and we, we have not done well in that. And that's where we see this continual emergence of new variants. My guest is Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, scientist. He actually studies emerging and re-emerging viruses and has done so for a while and focuses in on, uh, amongst other viruses like Ebola, he focuses in on COVID as well and has been talking about this for a while. Just a quick question here. Um, prevention is the best treatment and I'm fully vaccinated, which by the way, fully vaccinated um, as defined by the CDC, means up to date, which means to have your booster. But if I get Omicron, what is the best thing to do? Best thing to do is to take care of yourself, isolate. Um, if you should get more, notify your doctor um, if your symptoms get severe, uh, especially make sure that uh, you actually have um, food and if you need medication and uh, let others know that um, of your condition, uh, check in with people on the daily basis and just really watch your symptoms. But if you're fully vaccinated, hopefully the symptoms will be mild and you will not require hospitalization. But with the million cases, Dr. Kinderchuk, that they're projecting uh, for the fall and winter, that's going to increase, just the sheer number is going to increase the um, number of hospitalizations and deaths, would you say? Yeah, and and, and we want to keep in mind again that uh, listen, we're you know now as we move into you know kind of whatever stage of the pandemic we are now, where we're living with virus, we're removing protections and restrictions. Uh, we have to appreciate that that COVID is not the the only bully on the block, right? We're we're now going back to a time when influenza is circulating. We have RSV, we have you know adenoviruses and rhinoviruses. We have all these other pathogens that we normally have faced in the past, but have had a bit of a reprieve from the last couple of years. So. Yeah, it's listen. I, I think moving ahead, um, we've got to be very cautious, right? We don't know what that baseline is going to look like, and the unfortunate reality that we already do know is that from the baseline wasn't that great with what we already faced. Now, if we add COVID in, um, that is going to to be an excess above what we've seen previously, and we don't know how high necessarily that excess will be because that's going to be dependent on the variant and obviously dependent on on immunity in our communities. Mm-hmm. And we've the U.S. has lost more than a million lives uh, to COVID nineteen. We've probably lost a hundred thousand lives. So the groups that have been hit, if you will, um, nursing homes, um, prisons, uh, seniors. So why are are those particular groups vulnerable? 
Yeah, it's, it's a combination of factors, right? And I, I wrote about this in a, in a, in a thread I was writing uh, this weekend. The, the, the group that I think often also gets forgotten a little bit in this are those that have intellectual and developmental disabilities and hit mm-hmm. unbelievably hard, in, certainly in the U.S., um, and, and I think that's something that, that hasn't necessarily been talked about. And the factors going underneath this are complex, right? Certainly that we have to think immediately about are there biological uh, consequences for people that are in long-term care facilities, um, you know, people that, uh, that have underlying health conditions where they require uh, ongoing care, that, that can lead to biological reasonings for why they're more prone to, you know, severe disease. But then we start to look in, to what, well, what do we understand about the behaviors of this, of this virus? Well, it, it likes to move around in, in areas where we have shared airspace, where we don't have great ventilation, um, where we don't have that, that ability to, to distance uh, between us, or we may not have um, uh, adequate uh, infection prevention control measures. So, you know, you start getting into congregate settings and you start to look at the impacts those have. Access to healthcare also is unbelievably important. When you look at the um, the effects on certainly on racialized communities, on those communities that have uh, that have um, you know historically uh, have you know been underrepresented in regards to access to healthcare, it's a big issue. So I think we're, we're looking at all these things. We're looking at the social determinants of health. We're looking at the biological factors, the biological factors. All of these have to be um, assessed, and and that's difficult because there is no one thing that we can change that will reduce all the impact. It's really going to be situation dependent, but we've got to do it. We, we have to start to look at this and say, where do we get impact the hardest and how do we make those spaces safer? When we think of mothers, of course, we think of caregiving. We've been talking about caregiving the last few weeks because it's a conversation that we need to continue here in Canada. And in fact, Teva Canada, which is the world's largest medicine cabinet that offers generic, specialty, biosimilar, and over-the-counter medications to Canadians, who also provide resources to patients and caregivers, have a commitment to the more than 8 million caregivers across Canada. Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. They're wondering, how can care be reimagined for the betterment of patients and caregivers at all stages of life? So to move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and now May, they started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers themselves, patients, and healthcare professionals, to create a new prescription for care. They've developed a fabulous five-part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. And the host, Mark Stolo, is CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to engage in healthcare reform. According to the General Social Survey, Caregiving and Care Receiving, which was compiled pre-pandemic and released in 2022, one in four Canadians aged 15 or older are providing care for family members or friends with a long-term condition, a physical or mental disability, or problems related to aging. More than 20,000 respondents polled represent 31 million Canadians. Women account for almost two-thirds of the caregivers providing 20 or more hours of care per week. And those providing that level of care are more likely to report their caring 
caregiving responsibilities to be stressful or very stressful. A further 86% of respondents who provide more than 20 hours of care per week felt they were unable to spend as much time with their family, and more than 78% reported spending less time participating in social activities and with friends. You can imagine the impact this has on people's lives. In addition to the podcast, which I highly recommend you tune into, you are also invited to a special live virtual panel event on May 10th that brings the podcast experts together along with a keynote speaker and former TSN host, Michael Landsberg, who is a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. Speaking of Michael, the phrase off the record connotes a hushed conversation, mm. but TSN's popular talk show of the same name was anything but secretive. Hosted by Michael Landsberg, the series, which recently ended after an 18-season run, was full of personality, humor, debate, sports commentary, pop culture, and big-name personalities. On stage, Landsberg was a candid and funny host who didn't shy away from the taboos. He speaks openly about his personal battle with depression and considers breaking the stigma around mental illness his life's most important calling. Today, he's one of Canada's foremost mental health advocates and the founder of Hashtag Sick Not Weak, a charity that reframes mental illness as a health issue rather than a character flaw. The foundation serves as both a resource and community for people living with mental illness and those who wish to support their loved ones. And I'm very happy to have Michael Landsberg on the program with me this evening. Good evening, Michael. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And thank you for that lovely introduction. And before you started introducing me, it was one of the rare times that I'm being interviewed where I actually learned something. I was listening to you talk uh, with statistics and about uh, just about this, this whole area that we're dealing with. And I thought, well, I just learned something. So thanks. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for um, flipping the switch for me and being on the other side of the mic, <laughs> um, allowing me to ask the questions. Uh, I hope I do you justice. Uh, you've, you're an esteemed uh, host, and you've also um, you've had an incredible career. An 18 season run is nothing to sneeze at. And um, but you also talk about your personal battle with depression. And when we think of caregivers, you know, sometimes we kind of ignore this conversation in Canada. You know, people just. They're not first and foremost, if we know somebody who has a chronic illness, you know, we don't think of the person who's caregiving for them, but those people are at risk for loneliness and depression and anxiety as well. And you've had a personal battle with depression that you've decided to share your story with others, which always empowers other people. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about uh, depression and what made you decide to share your story. Well, I have uh, I battled anxiety all my life, but depression for the last 20 some odd years. And I for the first 10 years that I uh, battled depression, uh, I never spoke about it on television, even though I had that platform every day on off the record. And I never spoke about it, not because I was ashamed or embarrassed, but because I thought no one would care. I, I mean, I, I look back and I think, what was wrong with me? not to see the value in using a platform like that to share and to empower others. Because if you don't feel, in my case, me, if I don't feel embarrassed or ashamed or weak by talking about it, then I transfer that to somebody else who listens and they think, well, yeah, you know, I'm listening to this guy. He doesn't sound like a loser. He doesn't sound ashamed. I can do that. 
but I didn't think there was a value to it. So I never talked about it until I interviewed a guy one day who uh, I knew had battled depression, a hockey player named Stefan Riche, longtime Montreal Canadian, two-time Stanley Cup champion. And I had read just before I went down to greet the guests in the green room, I had read that he had battled depression in the 1990s. So I thought, well, that'll make an interesting question. I was not in any way thinking, you know, I'm going to change some lives today. So it was just me trying to do a bit of research and ask a question that people will find interesting. So I asked him in advance, would it be okay if I mentioned depression to you? And he said, I'd rather not talk about it. And I said to him, well, I respect that, of course. Uh, But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he looked at me like, what would you talk about? And I told him a bit about my story. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we went on the air. We talked for 90 seconds top. It was not in depth. It was not. It was uh, it was really nothing more than a cursory discussion about this illness that in theory, people should have heard a million times before. But what I learned after the show went to air was that many of them had never heard to men in particular talking about depression without shame and embarrassment. And when I learned the power that anybody has who can explain what depression really feels like to them and what it's done to them, the power that that person has to implement change in others is extraordinary. And that's when it began for me. Wow, it certainly is. And, um, you know, you wouldn't expect somebody like yourself to experience depression because in part because there's such a stigma, people don't understand depression. What was the depression journey like for you? What were some of your symptoms? Uh, Well, uh, that's one of the things I talk a lot about. um, Because I I think, first of all, by talking about the symptoms of depression, uh, and not, not not the ones that if you Google symptoms of depression, you'll get a half a billion hits in, in four tenths of a second. But that's not what depression feels like. And you know, fatigue during the day and difficulty sleeping at night. Those are traditional symptoms. But the real value is to answer your question in what did it feel like to me? And the defining characteristic of depression, I mean everyone that has ever been diagnosed with severe depression or serious depression, has experienced this. And when I, when I say that, I don't, I don't say it lightly. Uh, I give talks. I started to do them again face-to-face, and I gave a talk last week. And once again, I asked, I said to the audience, if anyone's battled depression and has not felt what I'm going to tell you, please put up your hand and tell me. No one, no one has ever put up their hand. We all experience four things. Number one, we all experience the loss of the ability to experience joy. So you asked me, what did depression feel like to me? When I was first hit with it, it was such a shock to me. When I realized that I had actually, uh, that I had changed, that who I was was gone, totally departed, and had been replaced by this person that I did not know and that I did not like and that I did not want to be. And first and foremost, nothing felt good. There was no joy in my life, not because good things didn't happen to me. I mean, I had great things going on in my life at that point, but I couldn't feel the greatness. And every person that I've ever spoken to with depression has said, oh, my gosh, me too. The loss of the ability to experience joy. And that is something that if you've never been through it, it's something you can't understand. Because wow, that's incredible. You think that, yeah, you think that if, if, if you do something nice, for somebody with depression, that they will feel joy from it. So it's like, oh, Michael seems really unhappy. I'm going to do something next. 
A caregiver um, becomes uh, really it loses purpose because you don't understand it. So back to what it felt like. Um, so loss of the ability to experience joy, impossible to I'm understand just gonna if cut- you haven't been through it. We're just going to, uh, it's very interesting that loss of joy of a, or a sense of joy, um, because we look at other people and think they must be so happy, so joyful. They have it all, but they don't necessarily, we're just going to go to break, Michael, if you don't mind, I'd like you to hang on the line as we No, actually learn. I do. No, no, I'm mine. Sorry. We're not going to break <laughs> until I say we're going to break and let's go to break. <laughs> You know his name. He's well-known across Canada. He has recently ended an 18-season run on TSN, a show full of personality, humor, debate, and you'd never think he experienced depression. Michael Landsberg joins me on the line talking about his own personal battle with depression. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Michael. Yeah, sure, Maureen. Thank you for having me. So we're going through your particular symptoms of depression, and you mentioned a lack of joy. Uh, what what you said there were four. What were some? What were the other yeah. three? And and, and the, the the first one, which I went on and on about, perhaps, but it's really difficult to explain it because it's not it's not it's not not having joy in your life. It's not being able to feel joy. It's like mm-hmm. when you have a cold, you can't taste food, right? You you mm-hmm. you. No matter how hard you try, you can't taste it. Uh, number two, loss of self esteem. This is one that people don't really talk about because no one wants to say, you know, I, I don't have belief in myself or confidence that, that I don't like who I am. Uh, that is also 100% common, particular to depression. Loss of self-esteem. We have a voice that we hear in our heads telling us all these terrible things. And it knows us intimately because it is us in our head feeding us all the things that we don't want to hear. So for me, um, whether it would be hosting a television show or giving a talk on stage, if I'm not doing well on that particular day, all I hear is you will fail. You will be, uh, people will look at you and they will think, well, this is dull and this is boring. All the things that make me, me, I'm told I can't be. Number three, we all feel this loneliness. It's like, it's, it's so weird because we all know that, you know, millions of Canadians, um, you know, uh, millions and millions in North America and around the world experience depression. So why do we think that we're the only ones? But that's what the illness does to us. It makes us feel like nobody can understand us. Uh, and number four is the sense of hopelessness, which is really, really damaging to us. The idea that you think, oh, I'm so miserable right now and I'm never going to feel better, that this is permanent, that I am destined to live like this. And, and that's ultimately when it gets bad enough and when you experience it long enough, that leads people to consider maybe I should end my life. Mm-hmm. We certainly hear about that. And we know uh, many people who have taken that route, death by suicide, uh, Naomi Judd recently, in fact, um, died due to mental illness is what they said. She also mm-hmm. spoke openly about her depression, um, you know, leaving loved ones behind and, and you know, a, a country mourning, uh, certainly country music fans mourning all over the world. Um, what uh, you said you were shocked when you got the diagnosis. Uh, what caused you to actually go and see the doctor? Um, was the realization that I had changed. But Maureen, it's, it's, it's difficult. And it's one of the reasons why we need people talking about it. Um, because you can alert people in an audience. Say, if you're speaking to 200 people, 
someone is going to come up to me afterwards after talking like you and I are talking right now. And somebody is going to say, oh, my gosh, I think you were talking about me. But it happens so slowly. It's a tiny, tiny, minuscule change in us that happens over sometimes a six-month period. This is the way it was for me, where I didn't know that it was going on. I didn't know it was happening. It was like a tiny bit of me was replaced every night while I was sleeping. And it was so small, I didn't notice it. And it was replaced by something that I didn't know, that I didn't recognize, that I didn't want to be. And it wasn't until I realized I turned down the opportunity to do something that I would never have turned down before, that I thought, wow, and I started to forensically evaluate my life the previous six months. And I came to the conclusion that I've changed and that, that I'm sick and that I need help. And did your friends and family around you notice? Did anyone try to say you're not the same person that you were? What's wrong? What's going on? Yes. Yes. I, I heard that. Um, but I also learned, and this is, this is why uh, one of the reasons why the illness is so frightening is that those of us who experience it, get really good at wearing the mask. Uh, and you become really adept at showing people not what you're feeling, but you show them what you think they want to see in you. And I think I was well cast in that role because as a television host, you do that. As a radio host, you do that. You don't, you don't play out your, your moods on the air. You watch Lisa LaFlamme on CTV News and every single night she's the same person. But some days she's had a good day. I'm not talking about depression now. I'm talking that we learn to show the audience what we think is appropriate at certain times. So I think I was well-versed in it already. So I was able to fool people. And, you know, certainly when I came out and started sharing, because I told people in my life when, when I realized I was depressed and then when I went to the doctor and had it confirmed and started on medication, I told everybody, you know, that I had this. And, and a lot of people didn't believe it. Nah, come on, no way. And uh, that was an education as well. Yeah, they, they can't believe it, especially somebody like yourself who would go yes. to the air uh, frequently. And But, you know, sometimes, as you say, people with depression pull it together and put on the mask just for a period of time. And when they leave that, they might go back to bed for 22 hours of the day. Um, I had somebody describe depression to me as feeling like it, his feet were in quicksand and he was dragging one foot after the other out of quicksand. What would you say to somebody out there who is potentially experiencing a change or a loss of the experience of joy, feeling lonely and down and low self-esteem and hopeless. What would you say to them, somebody who's listening right now, especially men, because depression seems to be okay, if you will, for women, but men have a tremendous sense that it's a, a weakness or that there's something wrong with them, that they're not masculine enough or they should be stronger than this because of societal expectations. But what would you say to people out there? Well, for sure, you're right on, on the male-female thing. Uh, there is, uh, I mean, we know that um, women have trouble with the stigma as well, the perception of weakness, but not as, as badly as men do. Uh, and that's why we call our charity Sick Not Weak. The perception of weakness is at the heart of the stigma. And, you know, I, I say to men, there's, there's a way you can evaluate this. You know, I call it the basic joy test. What brings you basic joy, Maureen, in your life? You don't have to answer this because you haven't thought about it. But, you know, for me, it's like a sip of coffee in the morning when I feel good, when I feel normal. 
that sip brings me a tiny bit of joy, right? So it's basic joy. Mm -hmm. It's not, I won the lottery joy. It's not that I had this amazing thing happen to me, but it's one of the things that makes our day worthwhile. And if you can think about what brings you basic joy and ask yourself the question, when was the last time I felt that? If the answer was six months ago or a year ago, or I don't even remember, that's when you gotta get yourself to, uh, to a doctor, uh, and it usually starts with a family doctor, and the system is terrible, so I'm not going to say that it's easy, that once you realize that you need help, but you have to come to grips with the idea that if you have felt crappy every morning that you've woken up for six months or a year or however long, I promise you, you're going to feel crappy tomorrow morning. If you don't do something to, to get rid of this, to improve your life, to get healthier, if you don't do it, you'll just continue giving up your life to your illness. And that's tragic. You know, we mentioned suicide and Naomi Judd and how, you know, how tragic that is. But it, suicide is not the only tragedy of mental illness. There's also loss of time in your life that you can't get back. Like I figured out once that I had given up about four years of my life over the course of 20 years to depression. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm not getting that back. You know, it's not like at the end of my life, if there is a God, he's going to come down and say, you know what, buddy, I owe you four years. So you get back out there, you have a good time. And then I'll see you in four years. It's tragic to give up your life to this illness. It, it certainly is, Michael. Thank you so much for joining the program tonight. I really appreciate it. And I love your candid approach to a very significant medical condition, depression. And thanks so much for sharing your story. Sick Not Weak is a charity that reframes mental illness as a health issue. But best of luck to you, best of luck to you Michael, and we'll definitely get you back on the program. Anytime. Thanks for the chance to share. You're very welcome. You can find a new podcast every Tuesday between April 5th and May 3rd, TevaCanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In addition, Teva Canada wants you to be part of the conversation. They want your ideas, big and small, that would support caregivers and change the way we view and deliver health care in Canada. So check out their prescription for care survey at www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In 10 minutes, you can have a say in the kind of health care you'd like to see in the future. And as I mentioned earlier, you're also invited to a special live virtual panel event on Tuesday, May 10th, that brings the podcast experts together, along with keynote speaker and former TSN host that you've just heard from, Michael Landsberg. As you know, he's a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. Hashtag prescription for care. Sign up for their Facebook live event on May 10th. It's that free virtual panel discussion that you do not want to miss. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath hosting this program for you. TMJ temporomandibular joint disorders are conditions affecting the jaw joints and surrounding muscles and ligaments that can be caused by trauma and improper bite, arthritis, or wear and tear. Common symptoms are jaw tenderness, headaches, earaches, and facial pain and teeth grinding. Joining me on the line to discuss this very common condition is Dr. Cheryl Cable. She's a maxillofacial prosthodontist, president of the Canadian Association of Women Dentists, and associate professor of the University of Alberta. Good evening, Dr. Cable. Good evening. Nice to see you, Maureen. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for joining me once again. We've heard your voice before. Um, TMJ. TMJ. 
I just had somebody today mention that they grind their teeth. I know many people who have been diagnosed with TMJ. Uh, tell me a little bit about this. What would be, I imagine, an extremely annoying condition? Well, temporomandibular joint dysfunction. So we all have two TMJs, and it's the the little hinge how the lower jaw attaches to the skull. So we know that the lower jaw kind of just hangs there. It's actually not fixed to the skull, but it's held in place by muscles. It's got ligaments forward and backwards. And of course, we've got a little disc in the middle. So not unlike people who run long, long distances and they will get osteoarthritis within their joint there. You can also get osteoarthritis within your TMJ. So just gradual wear and tear and breakdown. But when we start having external things happening to us, we sometimes it's you can get a um, whiplash associated with a car accident. You can get a, um, trauma if you fall down and you hit your chin. We can get uh, damage that way to the, the joint itself. Or we have parafunction associated with clenching, grinding, and um, uh, trauma that way. So the TMJ can present in many, many different ways. And um, it's, I think, a lot more common than most of us are willing to admit. And, and what are some of the symptoms or the more common TMJ symptoms? So when patients present in my office and they're, they've got face pain, so it, right in front of the ear, you can actually get a clicking popping. So if you, if you have any issues opening and closing, you get a snap, snap, crack, crack, or crunching sound, not unlike the knees. Um, that's part of the disc uh, with issues in there. Sometimes you get bone on bone. Um, so pain's a big thing. Actually, chronic earaches in tinnitus or mm. tinnitus with ringing in the ears. So if you think mm. of it, the eustachian tube's really close. And if you've been clenching a lot, you can get inflammation in that area as well. Um, masseter pain, so the big muscle right uh, on the jaw, um, will either be very, very large due to excessive clenching. And there's also um, pain associated with that. Then there's um, headaches. So you can get headaches in the area. Um, temple headaches are very common. Uh, forehead, eye issues. Um, but a really neat presentation of excessive clenching grinding associated with this is bone being deposited in, in your lower jaw right on the inside by the tongue. And that oh, wow. is definite proof. Yeah, it's actually uh, the Latin phrase of tori. So it's mandibular tori, which is Latin for um, bull, bull horns, and you're not born that way, as Lady Gaga says. This is uh, in response to your dynamic clenching, and of course, wear and tear and flattening of the teeth and breaking cusps, which we're, we've never seen more because of stress associated with COVID. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so would people get tooth pain as well or, or swelling, and would their teeth can. fit together differently? Yeah, the way teeth interdigitate is really beautiful. There's something I love about the anthropologist and how they hold up a skull. And somebody who's had just a whole diet, like whole grains and you know hunter-gatherer kind of environment, the teeth wear mm-hmm. in a really beautiful pattern that represents the TMJ anatomy. But once you start putting in artificial materials, be they crowns or implants or fillings or sealants or, or even orthodontics, it puts them in an artificial position. So then we'll do 
will have increased uh, clenching and grinding, and that can result in cracking of teeth, absolutely. So that's one big presentation we'll see in patients. Because a lot of people grind their teeth, don't they, at at night or even during the day? Yeah, and that's, um, that's just stress coming out of your body. So that's the important perspective is that oral health is part of health, as is mental health. And we need to make sure that if you're clenching and grinding, it means something's not right. It means you've got your, your brains continuously working while you're sleeping, you're not, something's out of place. You know, your filling might be high or you're just sleeping weird, but it's, something's not right. So we do have tools in how to eliminate that. And that's where you'll see people wear night guards, and night guards are mm-hmm. a really great tool because it separates the teeth and by separating the teeth it actually takes pressure off the TMJs off of that little disc and it lets you heal from the inside out which is the best thing you can do so put the wear and tear on the splint I liked I really like having a top splint that's hard acrylic and it's the least invasive one Um, there's really no indication to have two splints uh, soft or hard depends on your comfort level but they should be adjusted. They should be passive so that they're not forcing you into a position unless it's something like a sleep sleep appliance or airway uh-huh. appliance. But finding that comfortable position is something that's really key. And then you don't have to just wear it at night. If it's adjusted right, you could wear it while you're working. So if you're also clenching and grinding while you're working, like listen to your body. Listen to when um, you're stressed and then identify where your head position is, and then make sure you can wear your splint in that position. So the splint's Mm -hmm. a a first good tool. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, when people are grinding, are they literally grinding their teeth down? Yeah. You know, it's enamel to enamel in the best Mm -hmm. situation. Or if you have different materials like porcelain versus enamel, um, that's things wear at different rates. And then what if you're on medications that makes your mouth dry? So if you wake up mm-hmm. at night and you have to have a drink of water, the you don't have the lubricating um, advantage of saliva. So I always tell people have a if you if you're waking up because of dryness, you know, put something lubricating on your lips before you go to bed. There's different product lines that can help you with um, a salivary substitute. But also um, have a glass next to your bed with ice water in it, a therm- uh, in an insulated uh, glass, and that helps satiate without pumping back a whole bunch of fluid. So then that mm. way you're able to get a better sleep. But it's that dry against dry. If it's just tooth against tooth, you will wear your teeth out faster. Right, right. Now, how is TMJ diagnosed? So you can... Some physicians will do it. Um, if you come into your dental office, the dentist will ask you about facial pain, about clicking, popping, previous night guard use, uh, any previous trauma. Uh, sometimes you have to get an x-ray to make sure that there's nothing wrong with uh, the skeletal anatomy. So if you look at the bones, and then also you might need a different kind of x-ray to look at the disc and the ligaments there. Even palpating inside the mouth, um, if you poke towards the back. Uh, some physiotherapists, uh, massage therapists will do a, a massage inside the mouth to help relieve that. Um, another great tool that we have is neuromodulation. 
so it has many different brand names, and that would be things like Botox, uh, Zeomin, um, Dysports, different materials, that medicines that can be used to help decrease the parafunction or the heavy clenching of these muscles. So we have three heavy clenching muscles that are, help close the mouth. You have the masseter, the temporalis, mm-hmm. which is above the ear, and then inside the mouth, the pterygoid. So these are spectacular if you can inject them with the neuromodulation to help prevent that daytime clenching or nighttime clenching in combination with a tool like a night guard or an orthotic repositioning splint, which is a a splint or or guard that you would wear all the time, except for when you're eating and when you're cleaning it. Wow, it does sound like... Go ahead. Well, that's something actually I wear as an orthotic. So I wear it as Mm -hmm. a dentist with my head tilted forward or when I'm on the computer a lot as well because my teeth hit differently. And I am able to speak with it in. It's something that prevents uh, additional tooth trauma and TMJ trauma. Wow. That, that is fascinating because it sounds like something that would be quite annoying for people or, you know, quite challenging with all of those symptoms that you mentioned earlier. It sounds like a fairly easy, conservative, non-surgical treatment for TMJ. It's the first line of defense. And sometimes patients do need surgery. And we're mm-hmm. very fortunate to have some exceptional surgeons across the country who can de- do TMJ surgery arthroscopically or actually even full joint replacement. There's lots of different reasons why people would need surgery. Um, Trauma is one of them, congenitally uh, being born within a certain way as another. But by having these tools to layer on and at least going in for advice and knowing that you don't have to live this way there are people who can't open their mouths more than two fingers up because of restricted or locking of jaws. And that's something that needs to be addressed because of um, safety. But you also think about personal habits or personal activities that you can't do with, with your mouth closed. And so the psychological component is quite huge as well. My guest is Dr. Cheryl Cable. She's a maxillofacial prosthodontist, president of the Canadian Association of Women Dentists, and associate professor of the University of Alberta. And we are talking about TMJ. And this uh, disorder can be very, very challenging for many people. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Cable. I appreciate it. Uh, We've been talking about uh, TMJ, how can people reduce their risk for TMJ disorder? Well, one important thing we can all do is anyone who's in a contact sport, uh, you should be wearing a mouth guard for, for sure. And this is something that should be custom made. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't be relying on over-the-counter out of a pharmacy or a sports shop. But you have to make sure that the teeth are separated and there's a cushion there. So think about all the people who play hockey, soccer, all the different contact sports, basketball, football, we need to make sure, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, but making sure that if somebody has ever had a concussion, sport-related, we need to understand why, where's, where's the trauma, how has that been uh, directed. And so by protecting the, the t- not just the teeth, but the, it's the TMJ anatomy as well that we're providing that line of defense. And then if you are in a very stressful environment, well, one, why are you in such a stressful environment? And two, if you can't get out of that environment, what can we do to help you? 
And that's something where we can provide a splint that you can wear in the environment and have it adjusted properly and maintained. And then also look at neuromodulation. So look at injections into the heavy clenching muscles. You know, Botox not is not just for aesthetics. Botox has a lot of functional um, in, indications that your dentist as well can help you with. So on a daily basis, I am checking patients with neuromodulation for functional. I work with the neurologists, and they will go in their other areas. Uh, but we make sure that the patients are treated to the treatment presentation they've got. And these lines of defense isn't um, what's addressing things, then you have to work with someone who can really assess the joints and what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people are born that way. You can get rheumatoid right. arthritis in these joints as well. Interesting. One would never think of that. You mentioned like a clicking or popping. Now, I have to say the odd time when I yawn or open my mouth <laughs> um, wide, I do get that like a pop almost. So would that be... Um, something that I should seek treatment for or look into? Could that be associated with TMJ? Well, that's one of the clinical symptoms we're, we're looking for. Do you get clicking, mm-hmm. popping, cracking sounds in the, in the joints itself? Uh, it's really loud from the inside out versus someone listening to you, but making sure that um, whoever's examining your TMJ it has their fingers in front of your ears as you're opening and closing big. And then also ah. looking for deviation of the jaw and opening and closing. Like if you're favoring one side or the other, it indicates mm-hmm. that there's um, asymmetry. And so with that, we need to make sure we're ruling out anything that's really bad anatomy-wise versus something we can prevent. So if you've already got clicking, popping, you know, like your knees, we're all going to get a little crunching and um uh, discomfort associated with that as we as things break down over time, but we don't want to have that in our in our jaw joints. And what we really don't want to have is the jaw locking open or closed, which tells you that there's something seriously wrong with the disc position. And that's mm-hmm. something you should go either go emergently to your dentist, and if not available, get to the emergency room so they can help you with that. Mm-hmm. And what if somebody's TMJ is left untreated? Can it lead to other significant health problems or, or chronic pain, that kind of thing? Chronic pain is absolutely um, something you have to address. Um, altered behavior, altered abilities and quality of life and what you can or can't do. So we look at you know um, eliminating uh, foods that cause resistance. So you're not going to be biting into a big apple. You're not going to be able to bite into a carrot without causing joint discomfort, facial pain, and then Mm -hmm. looking at uh, opening wide. So then this is where you'd recommend someone put their fist underneath their chin when they're yawning and limit how far they yawn and put themselves on a a softer diet. And then um, over-the-counter muscle relaxants, heat uh, wrapped around the TMJs before you go to bed and just making sure you're not sleeping in an awkward Mm -hmm. position that's putting pressure on the TMJ. Right. I mean, everything you've said just says to me, sleep apnea, insomnia, depression, anxiety, yeah. uh, tooth erosion, you know, which is all impact quality of life because of something that sounds like it can be simply treated if it's detected early on. And unfortunately, you see um, spikes in women, especially around um Puberty in girls and then uh, women around you know, between 30, 40, 
and mm-hmm. it's usually hormone associated and then also stress associated. Mm-hmm. And we have to make sure that it's not just masking us a presentation, but addressing what's really happening and what's going on with with people. So this is a, oh, this uh, is a great line of going in to see the dentist, having the TMJ assessment done. Um, the fancy word is a stent anatomic examination, looking okay. at the joint and how the teeth interdigitate. But just being really aware that if something's off, you know the bite feels weird or something's there, your brain's going to work on that all night. You're going to clench and you're going to grind and you're going to everything that's in you is going to come out one way or another. Uh, absolutely. When the body says no, or, the, or when the teeth grind, jaw pain may not seem like a big deal, especially if it comes and goes. But if it's left untreated, TMJ can seriously hinder everyday quality of life, like biting, chewing. And, and for me, it would be speaking, because <laughs> I pretty much make my living that way. And uh, whether that's whether I'm working or not, I'm pretty much talking all the time. But Dr. Cable, I'm so happy that you came and spoke to us tonight on the Sunday Night Health Show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is always a little bit of a fun segment in the show. Um, uh, other health subjects are fun too, but not as much fun as this one, the back to the bedroom, and uh, talking about sex. And, you know, I find that couples don't talk about sex enough, but there are some sex topics that you and your partner, your lover, your spouse, whomever it is, must discuss. These are important subjects to discuss, especially if your relationship whatever that is, whatever form is looking like it's going to the next level, which is always a great and exciting thing. But you can also talk about these subjects that I'm going to talk about. um, If your sex life has been a little underwhelming between the sheets, and that can happen in a long-term relationship, or it can happen when things just aren't quite right uh, as well. You don't really know what is going on. As long as sex is consensual and mutual, then may I suggest you spice things up outside of the bedroom a little bit for some of these conversations, because some of them are quite serious. So before you hit go on your relationship, it's important to know each other's desires, preferences, and also sexual past. Those are key to starting things off on the right foot. So one of the things that's important to talk about, but it it can be uncomfortable. I understand that. But it's important to talk about your fantasies, your desires, and your fetishes, if you have any. Not everybody has fetishes, but you'd be surprised what fetishes are, but that can be for another uh, segment. But you should definitely discuss your fantasies and fetishes. And, and don't discuss them when you're in the sack, because that actually might be too surprising for you to spring whatever fetish it is that you might have on your partner at that time. You know, things like oils, lotions, that kind of thing, you know, certain sex toys, they're pretty standard um, for most, but for some people, sex toys are, are not necessarily standard and, and many people can be embarrassed by it or uncomfortable uh, bringing sex toys into the bedroom or into the relationship, but it's important that you talk about that as well. So those don't, the oils, the potions, the lotions, that kind of thing, uh, don't really require discussion, but 
if you are a bondage queen or a secret dominatrix, it's a good idea to give your partner a heads up. Um, if you have a furry fetish, definitely, or certain fabrics uh, type of fetish for guys, you know, that's important to also talk about as well. Many people will feel embarrassed by these conversations, but this is important. They can be the cure for a sex life that has gone stale, or it could be also uh, when you take your relationship to the next level, it can be that added excitement that uh, you definitely need, or you, you want to share with your partner, for example, can actually increase the intimacy and never underestimate your lover's bedroom interests. When people say sex, mostly they think of vaginal intercourse or penetrative sex or anal sex or oral sex. Uh, you know, these are conversations that you need to have. Are you game for all three? Is your partner, you know, it's really important to discuss what is on and off the table when it comes to sex so that you can clarify boundaries. And, and maybe you're not into oral sex at the moment, but maybe as the relationship progresses, you might actually put that back on your sexual repertoire. It can certainly be pleasurable. Uh, but many people are uncomfortable with the, that topic, with the subject, and, and, and it's men, women, and they uh, can have discomfort around anal or oral sex. But sometimes it just is a matter of time, and, and it is a matter of getting to know your partner and being more comfortable with that partner and wanting to heighten the pleasure. It's also important that you discuss your sexual history and future plans because your sexual history is incredibly important because, as I've said before, when you're having sex with one person, you're actually having sex with everyone they've ever had sex with. So it's up to you to look out for your best interests and you have to protect yourself. You need to know a person's sexual history upfront, the diseases, the diseases, the can't even speak tonight, the genders of the partners, the testing history. And if a partner has not cleared sexually transmitted infection testing in the last six months, then the results are not current. So it's important that your new partner have recent sexual uh, transmitted infection or STI testing in the last six months. This might be something weirdly awkward, but you might want to do it together. It can be a little adventure of fun for you to go off and get tested <laughs> if you are uh, feeling that close to this particular new person right now. Um, and you can start off with a clean slate, putting your health first, because sex is sexual health. It's very, very important as well. And if the two of you go off together to uh, get your test done, it could be a win-win situation. It could be a disappointment as well, because sexually transmitted infections are quite common. You might also want to talk about family planning or where the relationship might be going or, uh, you know, how serious each one of you is for the other, um, you know, because it can be very uncomfortable dealing with an unplanned pregnancy before either of you are truly ready to actually make that commitment. Um, if we look to the U.S., we have major concerns about uh, Roe v. Wade being uh, overturned um, and also um, just go to LinkedIn, read my most recent uh, post about uh, how I feel about the matter. But I feel that uh, if you do not, um, if you have not cared for a pregnant woman, if you are not a pregnant woman, um, you actually can sit this one out because um, women's bodies are their own. And it's just the beginning of a utopian uh, phase of the world. So uh, needless to say, I am entirely against it. Um, 
overturning Roe v. Wade, that is, and I hope you are too. Um, but anyway, uh, make sure you are exclusive if you want that, if that's something that uh, you're you know, interested in, or if the relationship has gotten to a certain point, you know, the question, could your lover have another is a very real one. And, and like it or not, everyone's definition of a committed relationship is not the same. So never assume exclusivity in your sexual relationship. You just really never know somebody um, until, you know, certain things have occurred. But be upfront, ask your partner if they're dated or married to somebody else. And, and oftentimes I hear from people in my clinical practice when they are having an affair, to be honest with you, um, the, the person that they're having the affair with is upset because the, um, their partner is having sex with their wife. So anyway, it can get very, very messy, but straightforward conversations are the answer for that. Now, the other thing that's important about sex is the calendar, not, not in terms of scheduling sex, because I do talk about scheduling sex. And sometimes when our lives are busy, you have to schedule it. Um, but before we even do that, it's important to understand, you know, do you like to have sex in the morning? Are you more of a night owl? How many times a week do you like to have sex? How many times a week does your partner like to have sex? So knowing and sharing sex schedules is critical to a successful and rewarding sex life that both of you will be proud of. And, and it's okay if your sexual calendars are different. You can be on different sexual frequencies as well. That We call that desire discrepancy. It is... Um, you know, basically to each his own and nobody's going to have the exact same desire, sexual desire or the exact same schedule as well. You know, but it's important to know if your partner is a night owl or a morning person as well. The other thing that is critical, very important, very few people talk about this until it's almost too late, but it's tied to sexual desire. Sexual history is important and sometimes it includes more than testing for sexually transmitted infections or exposure to sexually transmitted infections. You know, unfortunately, a large percentage of people in the world have experienced different forms of sexual trauma and sexual abuse. And this can very much impact a person's mental health, emotional health, and sexual health. It can actually lead to low sexual desire. But it's so important to have a healthy sexual expression in the bedroom. It's a good idea to be honest about what has happened to you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it, especially if it's somebody that you're intimate with. And, you know, I know it's a touchy, touchy subject, but it's best to initiate this conversation, perhaps one-on-one, -on -one, in private, outside of the bedroom, in a very safe space. And this can help to lead to that healthy sexual expression in the bedroom that I mentioned you know, you can start by letting your partner know after you know them for a little bit of time, that you have something serious to discuss, that you're uncomfortable about the conversation, but want to be honest. And, and you also want to set up a trusting relationship. You know, it's best to push past that awkwardness and get through to your story. And, and honestly, that conversation will bring you closer and likely lead to a healthier sex life. If you feel uncomfortable having that conversation it's with somebody, they're probably not somebody that you should be having sex with. Anyway, uh, conversations are very important as we have on this show all the time.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.